What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. Wonderlust is a website devoted for adventure junkies. They specialize in revealing the raddest, coolest, and craziest travel experiences all over the world. It was in January of this year when Team Wanderlust released an article called 25 Big Bucket List Adventures. I'm not going to go through all of them with you, but I want to share with you some of the ones that stood out. And one of them, excuse me, you know, they spoke about how you could go and visit Antarctica. I'm sure that's been on your bucket list to go have your feet frozen and hands frozen there up in that cold area. You could also, they speak about hiking one of the great walks in New Zealand, going on a trek to see Petra in Jordan, spotting a snow leopard in India, descending into a volcano in Iceland. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Um, Seeing an eclipse in Argentina, Antarctica, or Australia. Capturing the northern lights on camera. Visiting an endangered tribe in the Amazon down in Ecuador. You could also climb an alternate route to the base camp of Mount Everest. I'm sure that's been your bucket list to climb that thing. And then you could also go to the Vatican and see the Sistine Chapel and ride the Reunification Express in Vietnam. And this other one here is you could take the road less traveled to hike up and see the Machu Picchu in Peru. Now, all those are exciting, but out of the 25 in this list, the one that stood out to me as um, interesting is the ones found in America. You could, as they say, go leaf peep at all the leaves on the Appalachian Trail. We get that right here in our area. You could go to California and cuddle with the whale in the water. You could drive through the Glacier National Park here in America. And this is one I I don't really fully understand why it's there. But they said you can go down to Mardi Gras in New Orleans and experience that big party. And the last one is you could take a raft and you could travel through the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon. Now all of these are quite the adventures. And no, today we're not going to go on any adventure like this. But I would invite you to step into an imaginary automobile that is a time machine. And as we take an adventure to go back into time to see one of the greatest lives that has ever lived, and that is the life of David. Now listen, there's a, there's a lot of things you could study. There's a lot of passages in the Old Testament you could go to. There's a lot of places in the New Testament you could travel. And so to try to summarize the life and faith of David in one sermon is quite a task. And if you don't think I did a good job enough today, well, I will gladly let you preach your own next Sunday evening. All right? That being said, the title of my message today is The Faith of David. Now there's a lot that could be said about his life. And we're not going to hit every aspect of his life today, so I'm inviting you to buckle your seatbelt as we get in this time machine. It's going to take us back in the time to see his life at a unique bird's eye view. But before we get into that, here's the thought I want you to leave with today. Faith in God seeks God with a whole heart. 
as I've been reflecting in the life of David, reflecting on, on the events that transpired in his many decades of life many years ago, this is the thought that comes to my mind as I've been praying. Faith in God seeks God with the whole heart. Obviously, the phrase that stands out the most in David's life and the Samuels and throughout the scriptures is that he was a man after God's own heart. Today, I think it should be our desire to either be men or women after the very heart of God. That is seeking God with our whole being, setting our affections, our minds upon Jesus each and every single day. I wonder, are you like what Jesus said? Are you seeking first the very kingdom of God in every area of your life? Are you going on an adventure to seek him each day, each week, each month, each year from this moment forward? Now, I know and realize that, that I've said this many times before today, but I reiterate it again. Faith in God seeks God with the whole heart. Now, I'm just going to be open and honest with you today. Nobody can do this. And I know you're probably thinking, well, why in the world would you even preach this message? Well, the pattern of our life should be a pattern that would attempt to seek God with our whole heart. We know along the way we're going to be like David. Yes, we'll rise and, and be a victor, but then we will at times fail and experience defeat. But the whole theme of David's life is that he was, as a whole, throughout his entire life, he was seeking God with his heart. And that should be our theme as a Christian today, is seeking God with our hearts. Now, here's the question I want to ask and answer today. What does David's life of faith teach us about the Christian life? Now, the message today, we're going to walk through his life a little bit differently than all the other lives that we've looked at so far in Hebrews chapter 11. Now keep in mind, in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the apostle here is writing, and in fact, he's most likely preaching a sermon that was written down, and in this hall of faith, he's summarizing all the great characters of the Old Testament. And he comes to verse 32, and his time is running short, so he begins to mention them by name. Now, now I am of the persuasion that of all the people that is listed by name in verse 32, out of all the ones here, he should have elaborated on it would have been David, but he did not. So he understands the audience would have a working comprehension of David's life and ministry 1,000 years before Jesus, some 3,000 years ago from our life today. And so in the message today, we're going to look about how David was a shepherd. We're going to look about how David was a musician. We're going to look about how David was a warrior and David was a king. And lastly, we're going to highlight how David was a sinner just like you and me. And along the way, we're going to see these scenes of his life. But then I will have an applicational thought that I want to relate to you in each of these scenes. So if you would, let's look at the first scene today. David as a shepherd. It is in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we observe that Samuel the prophet is, is receiving this word of God and he says, we need a new king. Apparently Saul wasn't doing the job. And so, to the best of our understanding, David was a probably a young man, most likely a teenager of some age. We don't know if he was 12. We don't know if he was 18. But he was somewhere around the age of some time, somewhere between 12 and 18. He was the youngest of all his brothers. And Samuel comes and he, he's bringing this, this offering to offer as a sacrifice to God in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And in this scene, he comes to the family of David's father. 
And there he says, can you bring your sons? God has a king from your lineage that he's going to anoint. And so the first son comes out. He was tall. He was strong. He looked like a king, if that makes sense. And Samuel says, all right, that's, uh, that's got to be the one God. And God says, no, don't look on his outward countenance and on his appearance. Because I look down in the heart. And so one by one, each of the sons of Jesse come to the, the forefront. And, and Samuel says, now, are all of your sons here? And, and they say, well, no, there's, there's David. But he's just a young boy. He's just a shepherd out in the field tending to the sheep. And it's interesting, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we read for the very first time, the very first scene of David's life, he's called a shepherd. There he is, just a young man, tending the sheep there in the field. And they send for him. They come, and David comes in. He was handsome. He wasn't quite as big and as strong as some of his other brothers. But, but it was in that moment when Samuel recognizes that God is saying, this is going to be the new king. And so there they anoint him. There they pour the oil on him. There they went through that ordination process, if you will. But the only problem was Saul was still king. So David is still a shepherd. And I think it's interesting that we realize that David did not write all the Psalms, but Psalm 23 is one of the ones that we attribute to the authorship of David. And it says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want that amazing Psalm that brings us encouragement in our hour of grief and in our moment of death. To remind us that, that there is a valley of death, but we don't have to fear it because God is with us. My friends today, the shepherd boy, they're on the backside of the field. They are looking over these little animals and, and tending to their needs is one day going to write down the most profound and most favorite psalm in the Psalter, Psalm 23 of God being our shepherd. So David's life is a picture that yes, one day he'll be king. Yes, one day he'll be ruler, but his life is pointing us to another shepherd, Jesus. Peter writes how Jesus is the bishop and shepherd of our souls. He looks after us as a shepherd boy did many years ago in the field. So as I think about this scene, here's a thought I want to relate to you of application. Be a shepherd who looks after the flock of God. Now, obviously, you're not called to be an overseer of a flock. You're not called to be an elder or a pastor like me. And my role is to oversee the flock. Doesn't mean I have to be involved in every single detail of the flock, but I oversee the flock. And as needs arise, I step in and help and aid. But my main task is to preach and teach the flock the word of God and to pray on behalf of the flock. At least that's what the scripture says. There's a lot of church constitutions that have been written over the years that would impose a role upon a pastor that's not really found in scripture. That being said, while you may not be called to my role as an under-shepherd or as an elder or a pastor, you're actually called to shepherd somebody in your life. You are called to oversee people. And the people that God gives you to oversee, whether it's in your work or in your family or in a ministry here, God has placed you there to oversee them. And so you can look after that portion of the flock of God for the glory of God. 
faith in God seeks God with the whole heart. And those who seek God with their whole heart are going to be willing to serve in ministry. You know, the role of a shepherd, it gets a little dirty. It does. You got to get out in the field. You got to walk through the mud. You got to pick up that sheep that's got dirty and nasty and stinky. And at times, my friends, being involved in the work of the ministry gets dirty. It gets filthy. It gets nasty. But we are called to engage the flock. We are called to engage and to help. As David did those physical sheep many years ago. Now later in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, we find that Saul is troubled by an evil spirit. So the second scene today is not just about David being a shepherd, but the second scene is David as a musician. David is a musician. So if you could just imagine David's in the field there, tending to his sheep, and I'm sure there were times he got distracted to bring his little harp. Now, it's not a big harp that we think of a big harp today. These are more like uh, sultry harps, smaller, could easily fit in the lap, and didn't have all the strings that we have today. But here he was, practicing his instrument in the field, and word comes to Saul, who's troubled in his spirit, that there's a young shepherd boy who's a musician. And so he sends for this young David. David comes in and plays the harp before Saul and soothes the spirit of Saul and the evil spirit is driven away. Now I will say this. Um, Today I'm not here to tell you what you should or what you should not listen to in your own private life when it comes to music. But I will say this. Music, whether you want to admit it or not, is spiritual. So we have to use our own discernment in our own life about what we are going to give our ears and attention to through music. And music here in this passage reminds us that it can help drive away the evil spirits in our life. So music is spiritual. And music is spiritual because God calls us to worship him through the art of singing and playing music. Now listen, you may not be a musician here today, although I would encourage you to learn an instrument, if at all possible. Because it can help you worship God. You may not be able to carry a tune in a bucket. And that's okay. God still wants you to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Listen, God is less concerned about always hitting the right note. Or always singing the right, uh, in the right key. God is more concerned about a heart that is, has a posture of worship before him. And is in with the right motives. So be a Christian who worships God. I just have to read one of David's psalms that he wrote later on in his life in Psalm 18. It's also recorded in the Samuels. And and I love this section of scripture. In Psalm 118, it says, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength, in whom I will trust my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. Check it out now. He says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. The Lord liveth, and blessed be my rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is in Psalm 18 we see that David and the rest of the Psalms he wrote were prayers to God that were often set to a tune of music. And David is showing to us in 1 Samuel chapter 16 how he was a young musician seeking to be used by God. Now let me add this. 
What you listen to in your private life when it comes to music is your business with God. But when we gather together for the corporate worship time, our music has got to clearly be about Jesus, got to be clearly for Jesus, and clearly directed to Jesus. Clearly. Very clear. We don't have to guess and say, oh, well, that could be your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your husband or wife. No, it's got to be clear in the lyrics. And you know, it's interesting when it comes to music, not one melody is recorded in Scripture. Not one chord progression, not one song is recorded in an audible form. Relaying to me this concept that God cares less about our styles of worship and more about the content of our worship. So David is a shepherd boy. David is a young musician on the scene, reminding us to tend to the needs of the, the congregation of God and to worship God. But thirdly, the third scene today is David as a warrior. So David is in the field. He's tending the, the sheep and, and Saul brings him to come and play music for him. And then he enters back into his father's house and, and there... His brothers are off to war. They're fighting these Philistines, one of the greatest enemies of, of the people of God in the Old Testament. And there, there's this big giant who's, who's probably about 10 feet tall. And um, hey, listen, there's some pretty tall people. Even to this day, I've heard of people being over eight foot tall, almost nine foot tall in our day. So it is very possible and likely that somebody could be that tall in the ancient world, especially after some of the bones they found. But nonetheless, this giant is, is defying the name of God. And so uh, David's father sends David to go and to aid his brothers with some, some essentials, like, you know, some food and necessities of water and eating and those types of things. And so he goes there and he hears with his own ears this man named Goliath defying the God of Israel. And David just isn't having it. But you got to keep in mind, David is, he's probably just a teenager still. He's not, he's not big enough or strong enough or mature enough to, to carry all the armor that they would have. Listen, you know, the, the armor was heavy. Then the sword and, and all the other essential items he would need and warfare. He wasn't skilled and trained in all those things, but there was an area he was kind of an expert in. That was with the sling and the stone. I could see him out in the, the field there. He's got, his, he's got his little slingshot and he's just slinging those rocks and, and hitting those birds or those animals or, or helping protect the sheep with the slingshot. And so he goes in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and he has a face-to-face -face encounter with Goliath. And he essentially tells Goliath that it is this day that you will die so that all the world will know that the Lord is God. And it is in that moment that he takes up his slingshot and he takes up his smooth stones and he begins to twirl them and he slings it and hits Goliath in the face. He falls down forward and Goliath is knocked out. Now, if you could imagine, in that world, they would have armor all over them. And somehow, David had to be skilled to see a spot in the armor that was open and there he hit him right where it counted. And David rushes over to the enemy. Keep in mind, the Philistines were shaking their fists at God, saying, we want to, we want to just con continue to soak in our sin. We don't want to worship the true God of Yahweh in the Bible or the Torah. We want to continue worshiping our pagan gods and keep doing all of our pagan activities. And they said, we want to curse this God. And so they're shaking their fists up at God. And so God uses David as a tool to become a warrior to overcome the enemies of God. 
He grabs Goliath's sword and beheads Goliath as he's on the ground. And no, this is not a story that we can use as an inspiring moment to say, hey, we can slay our Goliaths in our life. It is actually a story revealing to us that there's a greater figure named David, and it's not you or me. The greater figure is Jesus. There's a greater enemy at play, not Goliath, but Satan himself. And there's only one being, not you and not me, who can slay the great enemy of God, and it's Christ Jesus our Lord. He's the warrior of warriors. He's the one who fights our battles for us. And it was 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary when the enemy's work was finally defeated and Jesus rose again from the grave. But as we think about application today in our Christian life, here's the thought I want to share with you. Be a warrior who contends for the faith for God. You ever heard of Michael Vick? I'm sure if you live in the state of Virginia, you probably have heard of him. I mean, you have to. I don't know how you could not hear heard of Michael Vick in your lifetime so far. But let's just assume you haven't heard of him. Michael Vick's number was number seven at Virginia Tech. And he only played at Virginia Tech for a couple of years. He grew up in Virginia. He grew up in the projects. And he was, he was a prodigy, man. He was. And when you watched him play football, it was like watching magic take place. It was like a magician on the field. He was amazing. And he single-handedly almost beat that Florida team in the uh, bowl when they were fighting or beating, playing them many years ago. Michael Vick was a superstar of superstars. He was. And when he got on that field, he was a contender so that they could win the game of football. And he would go on to the NFL. And if he would not, if he would have been a little bit more disciplined in his personal life, which you're probably well aware of, then he could have become greater than, I believe, even Michael Jordan in sports. And he took that great hiatus, that great time off football, and he comes back and he was just as good. But I say that to say this. That is amazing and inspiring it is to watch a guy like Michael Vick get on the football field and contend for a pigskin. How much more does God expect you and me to get out into the field of life and defend and contend for the faith once delivered among the saints? You see, after David killed Goliath, there was a chant and a song that people in Israel began to sing. They said, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And Saul began to become envious and jealous of David. He saw that the people began to like David and love David more than they liked him and loved him. And so there in that moment, David was back into the king's court playing the harp before Saul. And Saul took up a spear or a dagger and threw it to David and missed him to try to kill him. And David would go on the run for years, running away from Saul. And he goes to a place called En Gedi. And we understand, to the best of our understanding, Psalm 142 is the background where Saul is, is hunting his life. His enemies are after him. And he's right there, this great psalm of complaint to God, asking God for intervention to aid him. But it is in that cave. Many years ago, when Saul comes in, it's dark. He can't see anything. And David, his peoples have, have adjusted. He can see what's going on. And David had the moment to kill Saul, the king of Israel. But he just cuts off a piece of his garment and stands out and shows to Israel his loyalty to God's anointed king. Reminding us, that the greatest of warriors has great character. 
and loyalty to the throne. I wonder today, are we contending more for our careers? Are we contending more for our social lives? Are we contending more for things that weigh us down instead of the faith that builds us up? David reminds us that faith in God seeks God with the whole heart. And if we do that, if we do that, then we will be people who will be like David and looking after the flock of God. We will be worshipers of the true God. We will be warriors, not in the flesh and blood sense, but in a, in a supernatural sense. That is, we'll take the sword of God's word and march into the highways and hedges and point people to a saving knowledge of Christ. But then fourthly today, David would go on the run for years of his life, Saul would eventually die. David would become king of a small region of the land of Israel. And there was a resurgence of somebody else to come become the king. That person died and then David finally becomes king. So the fourth scene is David as a king. And it's in 2 Samuel chapter 2 and 5 that we read about David. Now up to this point and in the chronology of David's life, we have no idea how old he is. All we know is he's a young boy and his brothers are older than him. But it is in 2 Samuel chapter 2 and 5 that the Bible says that David was 30 years old when he became king over the people of Israel. And it is in his life as a king when Israel began to prosper. It was in his life when we would see the order of Melchizedek shining through him. It was in his kingship that we would see Israel still united as one body for the most part. And the prophet comes to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the prophet Nathan. David had a desire to build a temple, but the prophet said, hey, you're not going to be the one to build the temple. It'll be your son. That son of Solomon. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 11 and 12 and a few of those verses before that, it speaks about how the prophet comes to him and says, there will come a king after David whose kingdom will be forever. Well, that can't be his kingdom. That can't be Solomon's kingdom. That can't be any other king of Israel. It has to be the Messiah. And so it is in this moment that we see the concept that in David's life, it's a picture of a greater king, and that is Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who was and is and ever shall be. And so listen, the reality is, is, is we will probably never become the president of the United States, much less a king of some monarchy. But we are all called to lead. Some, you're going to just lead your spouse. Some, you're going to lead your children. And that is, that is an amazing task. And if you do just that, you succeed in life. But there are others who God will, will, will provide a place of leadership overseeing more people than just your immediate family. Leadership in the church. Leadership over an entire body. Leadership over a group, a large quantity of people. And so listen, here's what I want to relate to you about this concept of David as king. Be a leader who points others to the Son of God. Yes, David was a king of Israel, uh, and, and a lot of things went for the good in his kingdom and while he was ruling, but his whole purpose as a king, looking back, hindsight's always twenty twenty. You see his writing here in Hebrews 11. The writer of Hebrews is going back, reminding us that, hey, there's a greater king than David. His name is 
Jesus. So there's a greater leader than Joe Biden, than Donald Trump, than Barack Obama, than Bill Clinton, than George Bush. There's greater leaders than all of these magnificent, mighty kings and pharaohs in our world. And his name is Jesus. So I wonder, will you be a leader who points others to the Son of God? Will you be a leader who points your family, who points your friends, who even points your foes to Jesus? Because, hey, listen, listen, no present, as nice of a present as they might have been, they cannot save your soul from your sin. No king in, in the dynasties of China or any other place of the world is able or has the ability and power to rescue you from your iniquity. Only Jesus can. And so that's why we say with great truth and verity that he is the king of kings. But now we understand that David's life is now at an all-time peak. He's king. He, re he has reached the pinnacle. He has reached the top. He's come to the mountain peak. But it is at the mountain peaks of life that if we are not careful, we will trip and fall down into the valleys. And so the fifth and final scene is, is we have to emphasize this today. You cannot think about David's life without thinking about how he was a shepherd and a musician and a warrior and a king. You can't think about David unless you also have this aspect that David was a sinner. David as a sinner. In 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, we read the humanity of David. So much is said about David. He is one of the most referenced characters in all of scripture. So this encourages me today that we understand that all the people of faith in Hebrews 11 were fallible just like you and me. They were humans. They made mistakes. In fact, as I traveled to Israel, I got to go visit the tomb of David or the alleged tomb of David. And I watched these Orthodox Jews with their black and white attire, with their long curly um, sideburns and, and their, their legalistic mentality of religious life. I watched them bowing down and going up to the tomb of David and kissing it with their own lips. But today... I bow not to any man's tomb like David, as great as he was. I kiss not the feet of any earthly ruler like David, because he was a sinner just like you and me. You see, in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, we read about how David was supposed to be off at the place where kings are going to battle. And he was not there. He, he witnessed in his palace, which was probably elevated above all the other buildings in the area of Jerusalem. And there he witnessed a very beautiful woman bathing. Now listen, they didn't have the sophisticated bathrooms like we have in our modern world. So the reality is, is they would go outside sometimes and they would bathe. And apparently Bathsheba didn't have a place that, that where you could not see her. She could be seen. And David was a powerful, mighty ruler who he could say something and it would be done. Especially as a monarch. Today we live in America. We have all these checks and balances that the president, well, he only has so much power. He doesn't have all authoritative power like a monarch. The monarch could say, hey, I want you to send for that lady to come to be with me. And so that's what he did. He was already married. And she was already married. 
And so Bathsheba comes. They sleep together. David commits adultery and sends her on her way. Not for sure how long, but some time went on and she realized she was pregnant. And so David devises this scheme to bring her husband Uriah to come and, and to spend the night with his wife so that they could say this was their child. But the loyalty this man had to the throne was so interesting to witness. Not only did he not do that, he slept by the door of one of the king's places. Still wanting to serve the king. And so David had had enough. He was not able to cover up his sin in the way in which he wanted to cover it up. And so what he does is he actually, the Bible says he writes out a letter to one of the ones in command of the army. and says, I want you to take Uriah and put him at the front of the battle so he could die. And that's what he did. And then the prophet Nathan comes to David. Aren't you thankful for people like John the Baptist and Nathan who would even confront those in high power when they are inconsistent with the teachings of God? John the Baptist did it with Herod and now the prophet Nathan is doing it with King David of Israel. And he says, you are the one who has sinned against God in doing this matter. And so David inspires me because of his response to the prophet's word. You see, our response for, for, for our sin is not to cover it up and conceal it up. And, you know, you know when, you're, when you're rehabbing a house or remodeling a house, you have two ways of doing it. You cover up all the mistakes or you take it all down and make it right as it should be. And so David, what he's trying to do is he's trying to cover up his mistakes. He, he's got mold in his life and he's trying to cover it up so nobody knows it's there and it's just going to grow and fester. It's kind of like, have you been to Outback lately? Have you seen that hole there? It started off as like just a little hole there. Have you seen that place? Yeah. And you know what happens with that hole there? I don't know if it's a sinkhole or whatever it is, but it's obvious they did not address that problem. And so the hole just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And who knows? Maybe the whole building will fall into the hole. I don't know. But they need to address that problem before it's, before it's ever so late. And so here it is. Here it is. Here's the thought. That just as we need to address those sinkholes in our world so that buildings and structures don't collapse, we need to address the holes in our life that we're trying to cover up and conceal before God. And Nathan comes and says, David, you've got to make this right with God. And so in Psalm 51, David is writing this prayer of confession, seeking the forgiveness of God. And so here's the thought I want to relate to all of us today about David as a sinner. Be a sinner who seeks the forgiveness of God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God that God is a God who desires to be liberal in his forgiveness. In other words, what I'm saying is he wants to forgive all those who call out to his name. 
I'm thankful today that I'm staring at a group of people who has, who has asked Jesus to forgive them of their sins. And listen, if you might be gathering among us today and you are a sinner who's lost and in need of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness, and I urge you today to cry out to him like David did many years ago. Now, the issue is simply this, is that David, you know, we have this idea of confessing sin as a sinner who's lost, but that's not David. David is in a position where he's a believer. So he's, David is confessing his sin as a believer. So this passage, this scene in David's life reminds us that we've all come short of the glory of God. And that even after we come to faith in Christ and God has cleansed us of our sins, that we are still at times going to strip and stumble and fall. And so when we do, let us not be like Outback. And just put a fence around the hole so we can keep growing. Let us not be like those flippers of real estate who just cover up all the problems and sell the property for the next man to receive the problem. Let us get to the root of the issue and let us do business with God. Now, as we come to a conclusion today, I know that we have looked at David as a shepherd and a musician and warrior, a king and a sinner. But, but listen, we have got to pause and conclude with the concept of David as a prophet. Yes, we know the Psalms is kind of emphasizing this concept of worship. But it is far more than just worshiping God with a poem and a prayer. It is, it is David writing these prayers that have a messianic bent to it. And in Psalm 22, it reminds us that, that David is pointing people to the Messiah and his crucifixion. In Psalm 22, it's the passage that Jesus would quote when he's on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is in that moment that Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, he felt forsaken by the Father because the weight of the world's sin was resting upon his shoulders. And in that moment, he died for your sins and my sins and the sins of all humanity. In Psalm 16, David's writing and he's probably going through his own distress and he speaks about how he's not going to leave his holy and anointed one to suffer corruption in the grave. And, and it's ultimately a passage that is, that is messianic in nature looking to Jesus and how Jesus rose victoriously from the grave. In Psalm 68, it's a prophecy about how the Messiah after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, he would ascend up to glory and sit on his throne. Psalm 110 is a reminder that one of these days, our king is going to return. Our king is going to establish his kingdom and he will rule and he will reign. But he will also bring retribution and judgment to the unbelieving, Christ-rejecting world. And Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. That psalm written by David begins with that verse and ends with that verse. And so as we think about David's life, yes, a shepherd, yes, a musician, yes, a warrior, yes, a king, yes, a sinner. But he was a sinner who preached and declared the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And today we can praise and adore our God because he has given us this amazing gift of faith. I wonder, are you seeking God with your whole heart? I realize we can't ultimately do that in this life. But we can strive to do our best 
to have faith in God that will seek God with our whole hearts. This is the faith of David. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.